June 13th, 2021. That was the date that we began our journey together through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I, I began, when I began that sermon series about 10 months ago now, um, we started off by stating that the Sermon on the Mount is likely the most globally influential single teaching of Jesus in all of Scripture. World changers like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. drew their vision and resolve from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And ethicists and mystics alike have drawn on the Sermon on the Mount for their vision of how to rightly relate to each other and rightly relate to God. But at the core, the reason I believe that the Sermon on the Mount has been so influential to so many people over so much time and, and in such a diverse way around the world is that it gives us a vision for what it means for human beings to flourish. We all want to know what is the secret of life? What does it take to flourish? Now we're going to be wrapping up this series in the Sermon on the Mount in just two more weeks. The Palm Sunday and Easter are coming up. We're going to wrap it up on Easter Sunday. But today in this moment, we are going to encounter Jesus as he summarizes what he's been on about pretty much throughout the entire sermon. And so, one more time, if you would stand for the reading of God's word, we're gonna read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter seven, verses seven through 12. This is how it goes. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask? In everything, in everything, therefore, Treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. You may be seated. Ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened. In some ways, it feels like these words appear in the Sermon on the Mount sort of out of the blue. Uh, These are often treated as sort of a standalone text for like how to pray. And it seems like so out of place for the rest of the things that we've been talking about up to this point. In fact, in Luke's version of this same teaching, uh, it is in the context, it's in a narrative where his disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. And he comes out with a teaching a lot like this one. But I want to put before you that in order to understand what Matthew is saying and what Jesus is saying in Matthew's context, we have to understand this in three different contexts, okay? So three, we're going to go over three different contexts. And the first one is the immediate context. That makes sense, right? You should always look at the immediate context and what happened in the verses right before he says, ask, seek, and knock. And so last week, if you were here, but even if you weren't, I'm just going to reference it. If you have your Bible open, you can see Matthew 7, 1 through 6. That's what we talked about last week. And in a nutshell, that passage is saying, do not judge. 
Do not judge. And what we talked about last week was that that word judgment isn't entirely negative. To, to judge, or the Greek word krino, means to, uh, to examine, to decide between. Uh, it means to, um, uh, yeah, to, to, make, to make a difference, to make a choice between two things. And what Jesus is saying is do not become quick to condemn, do not come to conclusions about other people too quickly. Now, why does, does he say that? Well, be, he says that we don't have the perspective to see clearly. And he, and he makes this phrase right in the passage that you'll see, um, because you have a log in your eye, he says. Uh, and we talked about what that word means. It means a structural timber. So if you just look up at these structural timbers, and, and you see like Jesus is saying, you can't see clearly enough to condemn people because you have one of those in your face. And it's difficult to see, isn't it? Okay, so you can't be taking the sawdust, the speck of sawdust out of your brother or sister's eye when you have one of those in your own eye. Okay, so don't judge because you don't have perspective. But then Jesus says in verse six of that same passage, but sometimes judge, like you should know the difference. You need to be able to make a, a choice or discern uh, between you know, giving what is holy and we talked about all that holy uh, to dogs and, and pearls before swine and all that stuff. Okay. Now the question is, if Jesus is teaching us how to discern properly, even though we have timbers in our faces, we're blind by our own um, perspective, by our own trauma, by our own prejudice, how are we supposed to make wise decisions? Right? If my vision is, is all blurry, if I'm prejudiced, and we all have prejudice, that doesn't only mean racially, although we are, are probably all there too. It just means, like, I've got my own perspective that I grew up with. I am influenced by that. How am I supposed to evaluate well? Well, Jesus seems to be saying here, if you need help to discern between good and evil, right and wrong, this and that, you can ask the Father. You can ask the Father. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Ask, seek, and knock. These aren't three separate actions. They are, ask, seek, and knock was sort of like this first century way of saying intentionally request. Intentionally request. So we need supernatural help to overcome our blind spots and our prejudice. We need the power of God to heal the wound of trauma that we all carry, uh, this myopic perspective that, that we all typically have to some degree. We need the forgiveness from the Father and we need the power of the Father to be discerning on the one hand and not judgmental on the other hand. And the point is this, that the Father to whom we ask and seek and knock He's not stingy. He's not greedy. He's not mean. He's not working too late in order to see his kids. Um, he's not too busy with his own hobbies. Jesus tells us to ask and seek and knock to the Father who is nothing like an earthly father. Even the best earthly fathers, and I see some great earthly fathers out there, even the best of you uh, are, are flawed in some ways. Sorry, I mean, we just are. Uh, but God the Father is not. And if human fathers in general, this is kind of a wisdom saying, we all know there's some pretty abusive situations out there, but in general, if human fathers give good gifts to their children, the logic goes, how much more will our Father in heaven give to those who ask of him.
Well, what good news, right? Because we need help with discernment and being non-judgmental toward other people. And when we need help to treat others the way we want to be treated, we can ask and we can seek and we can knock. We can pray for help and the Father will help us. So that's the first level of context. It's just what verses are around this teaching. But there's so much more to it than that. To get a good sense of the second level of context, we need to pay attention to the structure of the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So let's just do a quick overview. Sophia's going to throw up the the first thing uh, on there. So the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And there are four major movements in the Sermon on the Mount. Now you can nuance it a lot more than, you know, finer than four, and we've been We've been going pretty deep on this. We've been preaching through this for 10 months, okay? But four major movements, and the first one is Matthew 5, 1 through 12. I like to call this one, this is the gospel for everyone, right? You know that as the Beatitudes. So Jesus is talking to this crowd of people. They're out in the wilderness. Many of these people were not elite. They're not religious leaders. They're not powerful. They likely felt stuck in their station in life and out of place because on the one hand, this type of person is oppressed by the Roman Empire and they're kind of outcast from their own religious leaders. They're probably frustrated and dislocated and maybe they felt, in fact, probably they felt dislocated from God. And here comes Jesus This man whose rumor has been saying, has been saying things that only God ought to be saying and doing things that only God has power to do. And this Jesus was telling them, them of all people, flourishing are the poor in spirit for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Flourishing are those who mourn because they will be comforted. And so on and so on and so on. Jesus wasn't giving a list of things to do for this already oppressed people. He wasn't saying like, you've got to do these things and then you can be in my club. He was saying, if you find yourself here desperate for God, longing for justice because you are oppressed, guess what? Consider yourself blessed because that is the posture of a disciple. The second section Matthew 5, 13 through 16. I call this the dignity of high calling for everyone. The dignity of high calling for everyone. Because Jesus is still talking to those same groups of people who think that they're on the outs with the religious leaders and they're on the outs with the Romans and where do we fit in this world? And he says, hey, you, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are the ones I've chosen to reflect God's goodness back into creation. That is a high calling. That is dignifying speech. And he's saying that continually to whoever will listen, and that includes you and me. Okay. The third section, Matthew 5, 17 through 7, 12. This is the section we're in, and I'm going to come back to it because I've got a lot to say on it. So I just wanted you to see, for all of you linear people, you wanted it in order. So there's a fourth section, Matthew uh, 7, 13 through 27. And this fourth section, we're going to cover in the next two weeks. And basically, Jesus, I still want you to come, but he's basically saying, like, I've taught you all this stuff. Now you have to make a choice. (laughs) Where are you going to build your house, on the sand or on the rock? Okay, so... Let's go back. Let's go back to that third section. The main section of the Sermon on the Mount. It is long. It's 
by far the biggest section. Matthew 5, 17 through 7, 12. The call to greater righteousness for everyone. That is key. It's the call to greater righteousness for everyone. This large section of scripture has literary bookends called an inclusio. So just think like you might have weighted bookends on top of your bookshelf because you have too many books and they don't fit anymore. So you're like, I don't know anyone like that. Don't look in my room. Um, But you got the bookends and they hold the books up, right? That's called an inclusio in literary terms. So it's this literary device that helps you to know when you're dealing with a set of ideas. And here's how this works in our passage, is that in Matthew 5, 17, you have the phrase by Jesus, do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Okay? That's, that's one bookend. He's got all this teaching, I think 14 different teachings in there. And then we get to Matthew 7, verse 12, where he says, in everything, therefore, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, for this is, everyone say it, this is the law and the prophets, inclusio. Those two bookends mean that everything in between goes together. And what we find sandwiched in between 517 and 712 is Jesus' greater vision for righteousness, for fulfilling the law and the prophets, which is another way of saying, if you do that stuff that he's talking about, you're fulfilling scripture. And what you'll notice in the teaching between Matthew 5.17 and 7.12 is that this greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees, it isn't more religious stuff to do. And it's not a bunch of of duties or regulations or cultish rules. It is all teaching on how to be rightly related to each other. So Jesus talks about all of these things that press our buttons. My buttons have been pressed about every week because he talks about anger and sexuality and marriage, and integrity, and loving our enemies. He talks about our motives in the spiritual life, how to have a thriving relationship with with God through prayer. He speaks to our complicated relationship with money, and anxiety, and the way that we so easily find ourselves judging other people. And by the time you get to the summary statement to do unto others as you would have them do to you, you realize if you've been paying attention, I can't do this. (laughs) This is really a tall ask. None of this stuff, by the way, makes a whole lot of sense in our current culture. Um, What evolutionary benefit would there be to monogamy or to loving one's enemies or forgiveness of debts when, they, when someone owes you something. You see, there's an economy to human relationships. An economy, that word has a range of meaning that's far beyond like money or the stock market or capitalism or, or Marxism or whatever isms there are. It has more to do with, than, than, with just finances. And in much of, uh, of, of human history, like an economy describes a system of just the way that things work. 
And in most of human his- history, the economy of relationships is an economy of reciprocity. So I scratch your back, you scratch mine, you get in the way of my goals, you become my enemy. And that's kind of just how it's worked across cultures and time. And you f- if, if you just scratch beneath the surface a little bit, it's how a lot of relationships ten- tend to work. And in the, in the economy of reciprocity, the assumption is that it's just you and me and creation, that we're in a closed system, that the amount of resources that we see on earth and between each other, that's all there is in the universe. That's how uh, that economy works. It's a closed system economy. And, and because there's nothing else, that means that we either have to collaborate or fight. And that, that's the only kind of options when you really press into a reciprocity relational economy. But Jesus is presenting us with an alternative economy, an economy in which God is able to bring energy and resources and agency to bear in time and space, from outside time and space. Jesus has been calling us to live differently because of how good the Father has been to us. And Jesus can call us to this sort of generosity in material things and generosity in spirit towards each other because of all God's generosity towards us. So just to pick up on some phrases in the Sermon on the Mount that we've covered, the Father rewards us with treasure in heaven. He cares more for us than the birds and the flowers, which seem to be beautifully clothed and fed on a regular basis. He he is far superior than the best human fathers on their best day. He's not only good, but he's an order of magnitude higher, and he's able to do for us what no one else can. Give us the power to live out the Sermon on the Mount. And how we need this help, how I need this help to live out this high calling, to treat others the way I want to be treated. Every parent has said something similar to that, right? Like, Treat your brother or sister like you would want to be treated. Um, Many of the world religions say something quite similar. Uh, Most of them say something like, do not do to others what you would not want others to do to you. Um, And in many scenarios, that is a fantastic rule, but it doesn't quite go far enough. Uh, Because not doing unto others what you don't want done to you, that's a great starting point. To me, that is a tourniquet rule. Like, we're killing each other and, uh, and doing horrible things to each other. Um, stop the bleeding would, would be don't do unto others what you don't want them to do to you, right? That's a, that's, a, that's a tourniquet move. Stop the bleeding sort of move. But stopping the societal bleeding wouldn't call us to take positive action. Not doing harm is quite a different thing, quite a lesser command than doing to, unto others what we would want them to do to us. So Jesus here is echoing the law and the prophets, and he says that the whole of scripture, the way of flourishing in God's economy is summed up in intentionally doing unto others what we would want them to do to us. It's more than just stopping the bleeding. This is a command that brings healing to the world. Now notice that Jesus does not say, feel unto others as you would have them feel about you. And he doesn't say, think about others as you would have them think about you. 
Now Jesus calls us to be doers of this command. Do unto others. Eric read earlier from Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37, which contains what many of us know as the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a parable that Jesus teaches in order to answer the question, so if I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, who's my neighbor? Trying to weasel out, right? And you know the story. This guy is going from Jerusalem to Jericho, presumably a Jewish guy, and he's traveling, and some robbers beat him up on the road. They rob him, they strip him naked, and then they leave him for dead, all beat up on the side of the road. And if this isn't too traumatic for you, um, I want to encourage you to close your eyes and, and to imagine yourself walking on a trail that's not frequented by many people. Or maybe you're driving on a desolate stretch of road where there are very few cars and you break down. And say someone beat you up and took your wallet or your purse and your car keys and your clothes. And you're laying on the ground and feel maybe your broken ribs, that sting every time you take a breath, and yet if you don't take a breath, you'll die. You are bruised and you are vulnerable. And you were utterly naked. Imagine what you would want a person to do for you if they came upon you in that state. What would you want them to do for you? In the story, we see two different men, and they walk by on either side of this poor, beat up man. One was a priest the other a Levite who's a person from a priestly tribe. And these are Jewish men who serve God in official settings. They see this injured, helpless, vulnerable man. And maybe they thought good thoughts or felt good feelings or prayed good prayers, but they did not do unto this man anything that they would not want done to themselves. What do they call that? The, the bronze rule or the silver rule? It's not the golden rule. Clearly, leaving him there to die wasn't good enough. But then someone else comes along, someone unexpected. This person is a Samaritan man. Samaritans and Jews had deep animosity between each other. It goes way back. There's overt racism, overt prejudice and hatred, and an overt quick to assume that the other is wrong. And in a story, Jesus is talking to a Jewish man when he tells this story. He makes the Samaritan the hero. Talk about logs in your eye. I mean, the prejudice that these folks had for each other would have been massive. But in this story, it's the Samaritan man who lives out the golden rule. An ethicist, Glenn Stassen, writes this. The Samaritan does nine deeds of deliverance. He goes to the wounded victim, he pours wine on his wounds, pours oil on them, bandages them, puts him on the Samaritan's own animal, brings him to the inn, takes care of him, then pays for further care, and promises to come back and pay the balance if there's any other cost incurred. He continues, parables are concise, 
So by including so many deeds of deliverance, Jesus tells us that deeds of deliverance are crucial to compassionate love, end quote. It's the deeds of deliverance that are crucial that he's pointing out. It was the deeds done for the injured man that make the Samaritan noteworthy. Living out the law and the prophets, living out this command of Jesus to do unto others as we would have them do to us, it requires imagination and creativity. It's kind of like a proverb in a way that Jesus is getting at. Like, I can imagine scenarios of my own family where um, <laughs> I wouldn't... <laughs> I wouldn't do exactly what I like, because I don't, like, Corey and I don't like the same things, right? So you kind of have to use your imagination. Um, I don't, for example, my birthday, I don't really, I sometimes forget it's my birthday. I don't really like big celebrations about me. Samara, my nine-year-old, she has it all planned out. She says, I want balloons when I wake up and come down the stairs. I want balloons here, here, and here, and I want a scavenger hunt, and I don't want my gifts out. I want to find them. She has a plan. So if I want to love her, I'm not going to love her exactly like I love myself because she wouldn't have much of a party, right? So it's not a, you, you got to see the generalization. You got to use your imagination and your creativity on how we love each other. And that brings us to the third context of how we understand this passage. Once we know what a passage meant in its original context, we need to ask what it means in my context, how do we live it out? What would it look like for you to treat the people who are closest to you as you would like to be treated? Maybe your partner or your good friend or your child or your sibling. Treating someone like you want to be treated often means being proactive. It means doing something kind, thoughtful, gracious, or generous before being asked. As you expand that circle now, think of your coworkers or neighbors or classmates, those of you who are students. And then you can expand the circle ever wider. How do we love our neighbors in terms of social structures? Like racism, for example. Like not doing unto others what we, what we would not want them do to us would mean not being racist and not supporting racist policies, but doing unto others as we would have them do to us would mean that we would, we would want, like if, if someone was being racist towards me, I would want people with the power and the voice to advocate for me and create better policies and advocate for better policies. It's a proactive command that Jesus is putting before us. We would want justice. We would want equality. And that's just one of many social issues, right? So when we consider the issues of the world, it can all seem so overwhelming. Like, how do, do I, how do you as an individual, or us as a small community church, how do we do anything here? It can seem, like, just overwhelming. What are we to do in light of the war in Ukraine and homelessness and drug addiction that is epidemic in level and scale? How can we possibly do it all? Well, I don't have all the answers, <laughs> but I do have two things to say as we wrap up. One is just a piece of guidance, and that's thus saith Christ, not thus saith the Lord, and the other is good news, and that's all about the Lord. So let's start with the guidance. Since you and I 
are not the Messiah, and since we are not God, and therefore we do not have infinite power and resources at our personal disposal, we can't be at 17 places at the same time. Since that is true about us, wisdom suggests, I think, that we first consider the responsibilities that God has given to you, that God has given to me. Who are the people that you are directly responsible to care for? What commitments have you already made? Who are the people that God has given you to love as yourself? You've probably already got a handful of them. Start there. One general rule, not hard and fast, one general rule is that God usually doesn't want us to forsake the people he's put in our lives in order to like care for others that aren't even in our lives yet. I once knew a man who I worked with for about four years. He was so heartbroken. His dad was a priest. And his dad was never there for him and his siblings. He was always off doing something for other people. He had written four books on parenting and marriage, and none of his kids would talk to him in their adult years. Okay, now that's an extreme example, but it is a true example. And trying to convince this man that he's loved by God who's a father, that was a tall order. It took him four years before he melted and was baptized. Um, That's an occupational hazard. And with news so readily available, it's so tempting to just jump on our hobby horses and neglect what God has put right in front of us to do all of these other things. So, so who has God already put in your life? What commitments have you already made? Even Jesus, right, who's God in the flesh, never left the relatively small area of Palestine. He only had a small group of disciples, and when his group kept getting bigger, he would always call that number by saying weird and crazy things, like eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and they're like, we're out. And he never chased him down. He was just like, yeah, I kind of can only do stuff with about three and then 12 and then this bigger group. And yet, as God, I'm sure he was aware of what was going on with First Nations people in the Americas and in the Arctic and in South America and deep in the south of Africa. I'm sure he knew that there's people. But his model was to invest in this few who then spread out and invest in their few who then spread out and invest in their realms of responsibility. So that's one piece of wisdom. Now the good news. Ask, seek, and knock. Faced with the overwhelming needs of the world, we might be caring for those right in front of us and still be burdened with the larger, larger social movements of the world. Ask, seek, and knock. Go to the gracious Father who really does want to hear from you on a regular basis and ask him, like, God, are there any of these commitments that I have, hopefully not your, your family, but like any of these commitments I've signed off for that maybe like, maybe it's time to give up on the board I'm serving on for, for this thing and get involved in Ukrainian relief or racial righteousness or whatever it is. Like ask him, like he, he brings us to new places. How many of you are doing the exact same thing you were doing 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Like there's very few people, well Nathaniel, yeah, but your life keeps changing. 
<laughs> you are not either. Um, yeah, life changes. It's dynamic, and I think that God has a say in that. So let's go to him. Let's ask and seek and knock. See if he might be freeing you from one path of life to pursue another. Or see if maybe, like, maybe he gives you peace or power to pray into a situation or power to support those who are on the ground. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's all kinds of nuance there. Ask him. When's the last time you asked him? Ask, seek, and knock. And when you're at the end of your own internal resources, when you know what you ought to do and you don't want to, when anger or lust or distrust or bitterness um, seek to prevent you from doing unto others what you would have them do to you, you can ask and seek and knock at the Father's door. And we can pray. And I'm just quoting Paul from Ephesians 3. We can pray that according to the riches of his glory, he would strengthen you with power through his spirit and the inner person, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be strong enough to grasp together with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge in order that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Amen.